science. Kicking off uh, our program today, Love and Science, an hour of science news and uh, chat. Uh, and uh, I'm joined uh, as frequently as possible uh, by uh, our, my co-presenter, Andrew Glester. Hello. Um, hello. Nice to... Ha- it's, it's very good that you're here because I think my voice may give out well, any let, minute. Let's hope it doesn't. It's, uh, it sounds great at the moment. Though. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm actually uh, auditioning for the Whispering Bob slot. Yeah, I think on BBC Two. I think you could take it. No oh, worries. Yeah. yeah, I could right now. Yeah. I, I, I just know <laughs> it'd be, week, I could walk sacked, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, and one of the big problems is I know absolutely nothing about music, of course, which oh. would be very, very quickly exposed. You do know quite a bit about science, though, which is good. A bit about, a little bit about science. Well, well, that's an extremely good uh, connection there. <laughs> and we've got a packed show uh, this week. Basically, we've got uh, two interviews, one with Dr. Uh, Susie Imber, and you'll see why that's important uh, very soon. Uh, and another one uh, with uh, a lady called Professor uh, Gabriela Gonzalez, uh, who uh, is, um, or she's an expert on gravity waves, and uh, that's all in the news as well. So we'll, we'll uh, uh, be talking about that in a bit. And Andrew's done some great interviews with both of those people. So it makes it quite a packed show. We've just got a little bit of time to talk about um, uh, a story before we come to uh, Susie's interview, uh, which is we're going to the sun, Andrew. Are we? Yeah. Oh, amazing. We're news. going to the sun. Uh, this is uh, this is straight out of an episode of Fireball XL Five. <laughs> I remember seeing, and I know as I say that there are loads of people who go, "What? What <laughs> is Fireball XL? What are you talking about?" Uh, Fireball XL Five went to the sun. I think the Thunderbirds did as well. Yeah. Uh, ev- inevitably, every science fiction um, series goes to the sun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, it makes me think of the uh, the Danny Boyle film Sunshine as well. Oh uh, yes. Well, of course, that sent people, whereas this is a robotic this mission. This is a robotic mission, which is very wise. Yeah. Uh, when we say go to the sun, I think we're going to get within about 3 million miles of it, something like that. Yes. 3, 4 3. million miles. 3.67 million miles. Right, there, okay. Which is pretty close. It is pretty close. The sun, I think, is about 96 uh, million miles away, if I yeah. recall correctly. Yeah from my school days, so, um, 93 million miles away. Uh, so uh, uh, it's a lot. We're going to travel 90 million miles to the sun. Why would we do such a thing? It's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, we need to find out an awful lot about it. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what this mission is going to be um, looking at, uh, in particular towards uh, at the sun. Have you... Uh, have you well, it's a, it's, um, a NASA uh, thing. It's uh, called the Parker Solar Probe, and it's named after Eugene Newman Parker, yep. who's a physicist who's still, uh, still very much alive and with us. He's been at Caltech and the Fermilab and everything and, uh, uh, in Chicago. And um, the, the, the idea is to send the probe hurtling around the sun uh, 430,000 miles an hour, and uh, the the idea is to go study the star up close because it's the it's the only star we're going to get to study in our lifetimes yeah. up close. Yeah. Unless something amazing happens. Yeah. More on that later. More on that later. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes abs- absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it's actually, I think, the only probe uh, so far to have been named after a scientist who's currently living. 
Oh, is that right? I believe so. Oh, I didn't. Eugene, I didn't. Eugene Parker. I didn't who, know um, that. So the Galileo probe is isn't, Galileo is not still with us. No, no, no. he's not. I mean, his his work is still with us, but as a, <laughs> as a human being, he's not still with us. No, he would be very old. He'd be yeah. before about four hundred years old. Yeah. yeah. Um, Yes, so um, it's going to make three orbits, apparently. Uh, um, uh, the Parker Solar Probe is going to fly, with, as you say, within 3.7 million miles of the sun's surface, more than seven times closer than the current record ho- holder for a solar pass, because we have been this way before. Helios 2 spacecraft came within 27 million miles. Now, when you get close like that, that's closer than Mercury, you then have some very, very serious... Um, problems keeping cool yeah and uh, uh making sure everything doesn't melt and become useless yeah so uh yeah they, nasa I, I i do recommend anybody who's interested in this uh, go and have a look at the uh, nasa website it's called the parker probe they'll tell you all about it and mm. they make the point that the sun's the only star we can study up close um and we depend on it for our life lives uh, it's a source of uh, light and heat for Earth. Um, the more about it, the more we can understand it. Um, it affects the Earth in less familiar ways because it has this thing called solar wind, which uh, is nothing to do with flatulence. It's uh, just a force that comes off of the, yeah. uh, the the sun, which was coined apparently by Eugene Newman Parker. Indeed. So there's lots of uh, uh, important reasons for studying the sun. Absolutely. Do you know... Someone else who studies the effects of the solar wind on uh, Mercury yeah. is uh, Dr. Susie Imber, ah. who I spoke to recently. And uh, anybody who's been watching the rather wonderful BBC astronauts program on the BBC uh, will have noticed that a couple of weeks ago we had the wonderful Tim Gregory join us here in BCFM yes. to talk about the program. And the winner of the program has been announced. Um, if if you don't want to hear it, tough. You're going to have to carry on listening because <laughs> it's all out there yeah, now. It is absolutely. Um, so Susie Imber won. Uh, uh, Dr. Susie Imber is a space scientist from the University of Leicester, and uh, she won. I thought it was an excellent choice. I, to be honest, any of them would have been an excellent yeah. choice. But um, what I particularly loved about this, about Susie's win, was that Susie was is I uh, came across as a really quietly brilliant person you know there was no there was no shouting from the rooftops about how wonderful she was there was no she was just wonderful you know she just was wonderful and you couldn't help but notice that Kevin Fong Chris Hadfield and Aya Whiteley all noticed that and crowned her the winner last night and this morning I managed to catch up with her and have a little chat about her, her winning the program and the science that she does Hello. Hi. Hi. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's amazing. Um, so wh- when did it all happen? When... I've known the result now for about four months and okay. I couldn't tell anyone. So yeah. I've had this pin um, in my desk drawer hidden away and um, haven't been able to tell anyone about it. So yeah. it was a big surprise to all my friends and family last night. Oh, really? What? You literally didn't tell anybody? So my mum and dad knew because they were there. Yeah. Okay. And my brother. And after that, no one. Oh, really? Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so right, okay. So you've you've but you've won it now for several months. Uh, are we, are we, when's the next intake? When when do you apply? When does this all happen? That's the frustrating part. So the last intake was two thousand and eight. Um, so nearly a decade ago now, and I don't know when the next one will be. So obviously, you know, I now get a letter of recommendation from Chris Hadfield, yeah, saying that I'd be a, a good astronaut candidate, but there's nowhere to apply yet. So oh no, have you got the letter? Yeah. 
No, don't have a letter yet. Okay. I think I'll have to request one if I ever get the chance. So. Okay, okay. I reckon you can just show them the, the, the television programme. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's you. Yeah, that's fine. It's episode six, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's episode two, where I get the Mars rover stuck in the cave forever. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be a great story. You know, if, if a Mars rover got stuck in the cave, then you would have to get off... Because you'd be in orbit around Mars, right? Controlling yeah. it. Then you'd then have to land on Mars yourself and become the first person to walk on Mars to retrieve the rover that you got stuck in a cave. There we go. It's a new story right there. <laughs> <laughs> when did you feel like you were going to win? Oh, never. <laughs> I was so convinced. So uh, towards the end, I remember that we all had one-on-one interviews and we had to say who we thought was going to win. And I said, Tim or Kerry. And Tim said Kerry. And Kerry said Tim. So um, I think no one guessed. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't clear at all because we never got any feedback on the test. So there was no indication that I'd done well or badly in anything. Um, and I tend to be quite critical. So I was judging myself quite harshly, I think. Um, so it was a total shock. As you can see on my face when they announced my name, I was just absolutely shocked. So. Um, the other guys, um, Kerry and Tim, when you won, I mean, they're... They could be at the Oscars. You know, their, their, their ability to smile in that situation was incredible. It was. They're such, they're such lovely people. But also, I think we've been together for six weeks with no contact to the outside world. We were just, you know, we were our own support network, really. So we're really good friends. And genuinely, I know this doesn't sound unbelievable, but if, if any, any one of us was going to win, and we'd have been delighted for the others to win. So, yeah. of course, we all wanted to win ourselves. But we also wanted to see the others win. And I think that was genuine, genuine yeah. happiness on their faces too. Yeah, the people that we've seen that you are on the TV for the last six, seven weeks. Yes, I believe you, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so uh, you're, you're a, a space scientist. That's right. And um, I'm, you're probably aware of this then. Space is quite big. What bit of it do you look at? Oh, I look at um, the planet Mercury. That's what I specialise in. So... I study the interaction of the sun with Mercury and its magnetic field and its dynamics. Um, so I've been using data from a, a NASA mission called Messenger, which was the first mission to orbit the planet Mercury. Um, and that mission was crashing to the surface in 2015. But ESA are launching a new mission to Mercury in 12 months' time. And um, I'm heavily involved in that mission. So um, that's sort of the next big thing for me is when Becky Colombo, our ESA mission, reaches Mercury in 2025. Okay, so that's a robotic mission, right? Yeah, a robotic mission. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no people going to Mercury, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yet. Um, but well, yeah. <laughs> would, you, would you want to go to Mercury if that was became a mission in the future? I'm not going to sign up to that one, I have to say. Uh, temperatures of hundreds of degrees Celsius is maybe a little much, so uh, but, I'll leave that to the robots. But if, if there was... Like, if there was a space suit and a spacecraft that could get you there and protect you, would you want to stand on Mercury? I'd want to stand on all the planets in the solar system, so I definitely couldn't say no to that. Um, and Mercury, obviously, being the, the, the planet I've been studying for years, would, would be great. Um, there aren't many mountains on Mercury. It's a bit flat, so probably not my first choice. But <laughs> OK, so you want to climb Olympus Mons, right? Yeah, the first person to climb Olympus Mons. Edwin Hillary beat me to Everest, right? So it's time to... To look a bit further afield. Yeah, yeah. But I, so, where does that come from? When did you start exploring? I'm not sure. I know the answer to that. I think I've always wanted to do this. I was always interested in reading books about, you know, Scott and the Antarctic and all those Shackleton, those brave explorers. So I think I always wanted to do that. Um, 
And then when I went to university, I realized that actually it was within my grasp to start climbing and, and really going on mountaineering expeditions. And it kind of spiraled from there. Mm. Um, so now, yeah, I go every year and spend months climbing these unclimbed mountains in the remote areas of the world. And that's really what I love to do. So, yeah, I think um, I think that's getting more and more of an interest for me. And I'm, I'm able to spend more time doing it now. Right. Tell me something about Mercury that I don't know. Oh, excellent. What, where shall I start? Mercury has an enormous iron core. So the core of the Earth goes to about half of its radius. The core of Mercury goes to about 0.85 of its radius. So the, the core is enormous. And no one knows how Mercury has an, such an enormous iron core um, and very little mantle and crust. And that's still an open mystery. Okay, so is that why Beppe Colombo is going there to look at these sorts of questions? Partly that, yeah, partly that. Partly looking at its magnetic field. That's what I'm interested in, how its magnetic field interacts with the sun. It's so close to the sun that its dynamics are extreme. So um, so that's interesting for us because the same dynamics are seen at the Earth. So by looking at Mercury, we can learn more about the Earth system. Um, but yeah, it's looking at the cratering history, the formation of Mercury, um, what it's made of, all of these amazing things. And um, why, why do, what, does Mercury have aurora the same way that we do? Ah, oh, good question. Yes, it does, but it's got no atmosphere. So instead of it being the atmosphere that glows, it's actually the surface of the planet that essentially glows in X-rays, and that's what we observe. So yes, it's exactly the same dynamics. What? So the surface of the planet glows in X-rays. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's it gives amazing. off everything in exactly the same way that the Earth's aurora is formed because the particles have no atmosphere to collide with. They just slam straight into the planet hmm. um, and make the planet glow in X-rays. So we've just written a paper on that, actually. Okay. So, actually, the instrument that we've just built for Becky Colombo at the University of Leicester is an X-ray instrument. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing, using that instrument to look at the surface of the planet and watch where that aurora is on the planetary surface. Okay, and what are, you, what are you expecting to see? Are you expecting to see the same kind of ribbon thing, or is it going to be more of a... Yeah, we don't know yet. We're not entirely sure. Um, we're expecting, because Mercury's dynamics are so much more severe, we're expecting much stronger signatures um, from Mercury than we see at the Earth, and in a very different location as well, much more variable latitude. So at the Earth, you've got to be far north to see the aurora. Like, you want to go to northern Norway, for example, or Canada. And Mercury, the aurora can be seen at much broader range of latitudes, which tells us that the system is much more dynamic. So we can learn a lot just by looking at those X-ray emissions. Okay. So, say, for example, you were climbing Olympus Mons, yeah. and, and then you looked off into your horizon. This might happen. Don't laugh. It might happen. <laughs> you, you look off into your horizon. Would you see aurora in the in the Martian night sky the way that you would do here? I, mean, I don't know the geography that well, but you know what I mean? Um, you you might see you might see something, but the problem with with Mars is it doesn't have much of an atmosphere to glow, so you wouldn't see it in a similar way to the Earth. And um, the interesting thing about Mars is because it doesn't have an intrinsic magnetic field, it's got this remnant crustal field, which is interesting because Mars used to have a magnetic field like the Earth, but it stopped millions and millions and billions of years ago. That magnetic field died out, and so. What we have left is this weird magnetism that's left in the crust of the, of the planet. And that interacts very differently with the solar wind. And so that's why it's so hard for astronauts to go to Mars, because there's no protection from the solar wind like we have at the Earth. There's no big magnetic field to, to protect us from the solar wind. Mm. So we're interested in looking at that crustal field to see whether there's any areas that might offer some protection for, for possible future astronaut missions. OK, so well, I, I, I... As somebody who does robotic missions and will in the future do um, astronaut 
people missions, whatever <laughs> they're called. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen. Um, they, uh, do you... Why would we send people there if we can do all this with robots? To go to Mars or to go to the International Space uh, Station? Uh, Mars. Why would we go to Mars? Mm. I think... So, to start with, it's, it's difficult. It's going to be a long time before we get to Mars. And I know that there have been various announcements. It's going to be quite soon. Um, I think it might be a while for various reasons. Um, and in the interview process, you saw me say, I think we should go back to the moon first. I do believe we should go back to the moon first. I think I think that would be um, a safer option. Um, going to Mars, gosh, it's all about colonizing another planet, isn't it? You know, the, the human race has always explored and it's part of what we do we go to new places and we experience new things and we learn so much from doing that I and mean, when this is just the next step you know 100 years ago they went to antarctica and now we're going to go to mars and i think it inspires a lot of people i think we learn a lot we we develop a lot of technology in association with with space travel um and moving forward towards that as a goal so um i think we'll do it it's just a question of time yeah well i hope it's you and um and also Hi. and also tim that would be good uh, oh, i know <laughs> i know um, me too <laughs> yeah yeah no, it'd be really cool you said for various reasons it's not going to be uh in the next few years that we go to mars so elon musk has just announced uh 2024 a cargo mm-hmm. mission to mars and then the first people in 2026 yeah. Like I, I, I think that would be good, right? I like that idea. I'm all for it. I, I don't think that I have the ability to do that. I think he might, but I, <laughs> but all uh, he might have the ability to gather the people to do it. But but you're a bit dubious of the timescale. I take it. I think I'm not dubious that it will happen. I think the timescale is very ambitious. I think we have to be ambitious with space travel. I think we have to invest in it. And we have to get the public and, and people behind it. Um, and I think what he's done is incredible. From a scientific perspective, what I study is the kind of events that would kill the astronauts on the way to Mars. That's what I study. Um, and I know that I don't understand those events. And I'm not saying all the astronauts will die. I'm definitely not saying that. But I'm saying there's a lot more science that we need to invest in and, and, and work towards a better understanding of some of the implications on the human body, um, as well as trying to understand really... If something happens, a big coronal mass ejection from the sun, a huge flare, how are we going to protect those people? Um, how are we going to make sure that we don't send a bunch of people who end up dying in space? Because that would be the most tragic part um, of this whole thing if we rush in too early and something terrible happens. So I'm all in favour of Elon Musk. I hope he brings me tomorrow and offers me a, a place on his space shuttle. Mm. I just think, you know, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Um, if you're listening, Elon, do do that. And, um, <laughs> that would be amazing. Listen, thank you so much for talking to me and uh, congratulations again on winning. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was uh, Andrew's interview with uh, Dr. Susan Imber, who's the winner of Astronauts. Do you have what it takes and you want to see what happened to her? You can see the final episode on BBC Two on the BBC iPlayer. You're listening to uh, Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com. Uh, it's always uh, great to have your um, company. <laughs> I was going to say your pleasure. Uh, I, I got that wrong, got my words wrong. And I'm croaking away uh, this afternoon, but it's okay because Andrew is here and um, uh, he's uh, plying me with uh, lots of... Um, uh, razor blades. 
Why saw, would I do that? Sawdust. <laughs> make me stop talking oh, all, to, all oh, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that does sound, sound a little grim. <laughs> um, we, I loved your interview with Susie Imber. Oh, and yeah. just to remind people, again, I said it just before the music, but um, uh, if you want to uh, watch what happened, that was a, a fabulous show. Do you have what it takes? Astronauts, do you have what it takes? It's on the BBC iPlayer. And uh, Susie was finally revealed to be uh, the winner. And, of course, we had Tim Gregory um, on the show, didn't we, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, And he wasn't allowed to tell us what had happened, even though he knew at that point. Yes, yeah. You know, I've known Tim for a a little while. And knowing that, well, anyone who's seen him on the television will will know just how uh, enthusiastic he is and and how much energy he's got and how much he wants to share stuff. So I just, he has been in the Vomit Comet, you know, this plane that goes up zero G. And he's not been able to tell anyone about it. I'm going to see him later this week. And uh, I'm hoping that all of that kind of excitement is going to come out when he can finally talk to me. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, look, um, uh, just before we, we, we're going to be talking about LIGO in a bit, and LIGO has all to do with this strange, mysterious thing called gravity waves. We'll get to that in just a moment, because we have uh, somebody very interesting to talk to on that. Um, uh, just uh, to pick up another piece of science uh, news, Elon Musk, oh, yeah. who you mentioned uh, in the interview there with Susie, um, Elon uh, is now saying that uh, he's going to have rockets that will fly people from city to city in minutes. So you can go from London to New York in 30 minutes, okay. something like that. Okay. Um, are you you up for that? Um, I can't see the need to go from <laughs> <laughs> London to New York in 30 minutes. But, I, you know, I suppose some people might find that useful. Uh, the same rocket, though, I think this is the, the interesting thing yeah. about it, for me, yeah. is that, uh, that, that he's talking about the BFR, which means the big rocket. Yes. Insert the F. The big as fantastic a, rocket, yes, or yes. some other word Absolutely. we get right. Just okay. fill in whichever yeah. F you yeah. want. Yeah. Um, is, uh, is the... the He's been talking about going to Mars um, for some time, Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, it's, every time he's, he announces it, it's met with um, a mixture of excitement and total disbelief. Yeah. Uh, and all ranges in between those two things. Um, the last time that he announced that we were going to Mars was, I think, last year, maybe the year before he announced we were going. Yes. And there it was... It was 2016 when he announced it, I think. Okay. Yeah. And... There was a big problem with it, which was that you couldn't work out how to afford it, to make yeah. it affordable. Yeah. And this new announcement is that they've, he's worked out how to make it affordable. I think, you know, affordable by his terms is different to everybody else's. But he is, uh, what, what they're doing, this, this BFR, this big rocket, is going to be the only rocket that they do. So all of SpaceX's work from satellite uh, delivery systems to astronauts up to the International Space Station to traveling to uh, other planets and these long distance flight around found Earth would all be done by this BFR. So that's how he's making it affordable by bringing it all into the same thing. He's also since that time successfully, or he, SpaceX, the people at SpaceX led by Elon Musk have developed these, successfully developed um, reusable rockets, which just brings the price of this thing so dramatically down, and it makes sense, doesn't it? If you if you actually think about it, he he can launch rockets into space and then safely land them again. Why wouldn't you launch them into space, travel yes. around the world, and then land them somewhere? Yes, else? I mean he since he's been talking about this has made made a big point about the fact that the reason space travel is so expensive is because it's based on throwaway technology. So you build 
an enormously expensive Saturn rocket, and mm. then you throw most of it away yeah. very quickly. Yeah. But it's, it, that, this is the thing with him, because I, I, you know, anybody who listens to me or listens to this program on, in, in any sense will know that I am obsessed with space travel. It's just everything to me. Yeah. But it's, I, when he says it, there's, there's parts of me that's just going, it, it can't possibly happen. But then it was only... 2016 that he said this yeah and now it's becoming more possible so the fact is that he's saying okay i think i said in when i was talking to susie i said the wrong years but he's essentially it's cargo ships to mars in 2022 and in 2024 he wants to send four ships to mars two of which will be crewed with people so that's people to mars in 2026 yeah. and all my rational thought just goes no way that's yeah. that's just not gonna happen but he keeps he keeps being slightly behind schedule, but he keeps successfully yeah. doing these. And things. he is delivering at yeah. the moment. Yeah, yeah he, he, he is. There's, there's all kinds of problems from time to time, but uh, he, he just keeps delivering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Susie said, it's really important to think big and keep pushing. Yeah. You know, she's dubious, she said, yeah. of the time frame. Well, so what? But at least he's yeah. holding out Absolutely. A, a vision. And I also think we need to be dubious about it. I don't think Elon Musk is the is, is going to be motivated to do it more quickly by people going, yeah, of course you can do it. He wants people to say, no, there's no yeah, way no, so he can can't. prove them wrong. <laughs> you know, he's a bit, do you know what he makes me think of? He makes me think of Tony Stark, you know, from... Um, exactly. Well, that's exactly it, yeah. yes. And yeah. I just, yeah. yeah. We've got a real-life Tony Stark, yeah. and he's going to take us to Mars. It's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> well, we'll see. We wish him all the best. Yeah, no. Anyway, he's a, he's a one-off. And he's real, of course. So <laughs> Tony Stark isn't. Um, oh, Malcolm. Now, one of the, well, <laughs> one of the things that's uh, been um, in the science news, well, it should be in the news, um, uh, very recently is um, we've been learning more about gravity waves. We've been detecting more gravity waves. Um, gravity waves, just to... Um, I'm going to have a bash at just summing this up very briefly, and uh, Andrew, you can just tell me if I've if I've got this right, right or wrong. Okay, is that um, essentially because we discovered, thanks to Einstein, that we live not just in space and time, but in a thing called space time. Space and time are all connected together. Yeah, we do. And gravity uh, waves travel through this thing called space-time and um, it's a whole new way very recent whole new way of looking uh, at the universe and detect finding things out about it if you can pick up gravity waves uh, you can you can detect um, activity in the universe um, uh, in a completely fresh and new way and um, so Andrew has done uh, an interview with Professor Gabriela Gonzalez and uh, we're going to hear that in just a moment. Do you yeah. want to say anything just to introduce this? Uh, well, yeah, Gabriella is, uh, Professor Gabriella is uh, uh, one of the scientists at LIGO, which is uh, the Gravitational Wave Discovery Center in, uh, in America. There are two uh, LIGO discovery, um, detectors in America, these huge, great big lasers that can pick up these ripples in space-time that literally wobble the Earth, wobble the matter on Earth, wobble us in tiny little ways that we can't pick up, but these huge detectors can. And uh, there's she, um, Gabriella works there, and there's another one that they work together with in Europe called the Virgo uh, Discovery. Um, I, keep, I keep saying Discovery. Um, yeah. uh, anyway. Near Pisa. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And what they've managed to do is use all three of those 
detectors. That's the word I've been looking for. They're all three of those detectors to detect a new gravitational wave, which is important, as Gabriella will, will uh, explain. But I began by asking her what it was that they'd found. We found another uh, gravitational wave signal from the coalescence of two black holes, like the three ones we detected before. This is the fourth that we have confirmed. But the really amazing thing about this one is that it is the first one for which we have detected it in three detectors. Not just the two LIGO detectors, but the Virgo detector in Europe. These are massive detectors, four kilometers long in an L shape in the US and three kilometers long in, in Virgo. And then what's so important is that now we have three corners of a triangle so we can really triangulate and find out more precisely the source, the localization of the source of the signal. Okay, so you've got, you've got a triangulation, so you've got two in the US, one in Europe, and these gravitational waves have come from how far away? It's a distance of 500 million parsecs. Uh, that's the astronomical unit. That's about a billion light years away. Okay. So these, these gravitational waves have traveled that far, so they must have been caused by something pretty dramatic then. Exactly. And it turns out that we can only detect gravitational waves produced by big compact masses moving very, very fast. And in this case, these were two black holes, which are the most compact objects in the universe. <laughs> but these were big black holes, like the ones we have detected before, with um, not the biggest, but these are 30 solar masses, 30 times the mass of the sun. Wow. And then they merge together at almost the speed of light mm. <laughs> and create these gravitational waves. This is, it's, it's so amazing. I mean, if, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like it wasn't that long ago that we were wondering whether black holes really existed or not. And now here we are. Detecting. That's right. It wasn't that long ago, actually. I, I know Einstein died before the, there was evidence for black holes. He thought that this was a mathematical curiosity in the theory <laughs> that black holes could not be could not exist in nature. Mm. <laughs> uh, but they did, and astronomers began finding uh, the existence of these very compact objects as the best explanation for many things. I mean, of course. We don't see the light from black holes. That's why we call them black. Yeah, <laughs> we don't yeah. see any light, yeah. any electromagnetic wave. But we have found, um, in many cases, uh, stars that are around the black hole. And those stars, uh, or the matter around the black hole, emit energy, uh, electromagnetic waves, X-rays. And that's how we have seen evidence from black holes. But in this case, with the gravitational wave detectors, we can find two black holes. So we don't see, and we haven't seen any light. We have sent alerts to all our astronomer friends to look in that region. Of course, it used to be a very big region. Now it's smaller with me <laughs> <laughs> to see uh, if they see any, any electromagnetic counterpart, even though we don't expect any. But perhaps these things happen in an environment where the there is matter that emits light, but we can see these things yeah. if, if they don't emit any light. 
So is it is it because they don't admit like that the uh, the other optical astronomers are, are radio astronomers looking for them as well? Is that? Oh, well, we have partners, astronomy partners in uh, in all wavelengths: X rays, gamma rays, optical, <laughs> radio, <laughs> uh, and and they they and particle detectors, even neutrino, cosmic rays. They they all look. Uh, in, to, to things that seem to come from the same region. But again, there has been no counterpart, uh, definitive counterpart found okay. in, uh, associated with this. Okay, so when when you first found the gravitational waves, uh, which feels like it was about a year ago to me, uh, it's pro- <laughs> probably long ago, uh, but it, when you first found them, there was all this talk about how it was going to be like the future of astronomy, and it feels like it is. It's now the present of astronomy. It is, the future is here. Yeah. Can you tell new things about black holes from what you're discovering? Yes, yes. We uh, well, again, we can tell the masses and um, from as- astronomy observations before this that that I was telling you about, we knew that black holes came in more or less two kinds. What we call the solar mass black holes. <laughs> we know they start small. They start from the explosion of a star, and then they leave behind the black hole of a few solar masses or from the collision of two neutron stars and then they form again a small smallish black hole like two or three or five solar masses but then we also know that there are huge black holes at the center of galaxies at the center of our own milky way there is a black hole that has Four million times the mass of the sun. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we only know it's there because there are stars that we can see orbiting that black hole. It's like knowing the sun is there, not because you see the light, but because you see the planets orbiting the center <laughs> where you assume there is a sun. So anyway, I was telling you that from X-rays we knew about these smallish black holes, which we call stellar mass, and these huge black holes. The black holes we can detect with LIGO and Virgo are the smallish kind. Okay. <laughs> but before our, our discoveries, the largest black hole that had been seen of this kind was about 15 solar masses. And that first detection we had was two black holes, each with 30 solar masses, ending up in a black hole with 60 solar masses. Yeah. And this is the second largest, with yeah. 30 and 25. Well, yeah. <laughs> so we are learning a lot. We didn't know. We had not seen evidence for black holes of this size before. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So, you know, uh, I, the, with normal telescopes, or not normal telescopes, but with radio telescopes and optical telescopes, not all of them, but you can move them, you can point them in directions and go, okay, that's where I want to look at that. But with you, you're kind of, I I assume that you're uh, dependent on the rotation of the Earth and then hoping that the gravitational waves will hit us. Actually, no, it's better than that. (laughs) Better or worse, depending on how you see it. Our detectors are more like microphones. They can detect gravitational waves coming from almost any direction, even below the Earth, (laughs) because gravitational waves go through matter doing almost nothing. The universe is almost transparent. Not completely, that's why we can detect them, but it, the universe is almost transparent to gravitational waves. Uh, there, there, there are only a few directions that, uh, that if the gravitational wave comes from a very particular direction, then we don't see it. 
but from almost everybody else, we see it with different amplitudes. So that's great. <laughs> you don't have to point anywhere. On the other hand, that's not so great because if you see, if you hear, or if you detect a gravitational wave, then you don't know where it comes from. Okay. But if you have two, then it's like stereo. Yeah. <laughs> with three detectors, which is what we have now with Virgo, that's when you can localize the source. Okay. That's when you have these three microphones, you have the times in between the detections, you have the amplitudes. So that's the way to know where the source is. Is Virgo new? Is that why this is the first time you've been able to try? No, and get it? no, it's not new. Well, it's it's just as new as LIGO. <laughs> okay. So why did you not why could why would a gravitational wave not be detected by Virgo that was being oh, detected? Because these these detectors take a long time to build and to and to tune them to make them sensitive enough. LIGO and Virgo had an initial generation of detectors. We took data together uh, since we have agreements since 2007, but we took data together in 2010. We didn't detect anything, mm -hmm. 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. And then we both went down because there was uh, the funding for upgrades for the second generation of detectors. But these things happen at different times. The funding in Europe came a bit later than the funding for the US, but the funding for the US was approved in 2008. It was only in 2010 that the detectors began being installed. It was only 2015 that we had not the sensitivity we wanted, but the sensitivity that was better than before, but we still have a lot of uh, a lot of work to do, and, mm. and we will need time to improve the detectors to get to to really achieve the potential. From now, I feel like we're going to be getting these stories more. These these are going to keep happening. So I, I could probably talk to you all night, but I, I shouldn't. Um, thank <laughs> you so talk for hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk again because this is great. But, but thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, and it was a real pleasure to uh, listen to that, Andrew. Your interview with uh, Professor Gabriela Gonzalez. Yeah. Yes. I, was, I was lucky to get that, I tell you. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I mean, I mean, that's a wonderful discovery that they've found. And as I said in the interview, you know, it, it's last time we talked about gravitational waves really on the programme, we were talking about it as a, as a potential future for astronomy. And it is right now an actual present. We are using gravitational waves to discover things about the universe. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's like having a new sense. Yeah. You know, we got we can hear things, see things. Oh, and I can detect gravitational waves. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're coming rapidly towards the uh, end of the show, so we're going to squeeze in a couple of bits of uh, uh, science news that uh, we, we um, uh, should do today. The first one is that um, body clock uh, scientists, oh, yeah. um, three scientists known as the body clock scientists, um, have won the Nobel Prize for their work in studying the body clock. The US scientists are called Jeffrey Hall, uh, Michael uh, Rosbash and Michael Young, American scientists, um, they're going to share share the prize. And the Nobel Prize Committee said that their findings had vast implications for our health and well-being. So that's hot off the press. That's a couple of hours old, I think. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. it's it, it, it's kind of counterintuitive to me. I feel like body clock 
stuff feels like it's a pseudoscience to me, but it's not. It's real. It's, <laughs> it's a real it's, thing. Yes, circadian rhythms. Yeah. I know it sounds a bit new agey, doesn't yeah, it? But yeah. uh, no, it's uh, backed up by very, very uh, serious uh, research. Um, the uh, uh, scientists have uh, discovered that um, uh, we have little molecular clocks. Uh, they studied flies, by the way, the, the famous yeah. Drosophila, yeah. the fruit fly, and uh, uh, to, to, to begin with. And um, they found that uh, these, uh, our internal clocks have huge impact um, uh, on, on us. Um, in the short term, body clock disruption affects memory formation, but in the long term, it increases the risk of diseases, including type 2 diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. And Russell Foster, we, who we've interviewed on this uh, program, uh, said if we screw that system up, we'll have a big impact on our metabolism. And, um, you know, this uh, research is very important. So we ought to spend a bit of time talking about this at some point yeah. uh, in, in another show Let's because do uh, it does have uh, big implications for our health. Um, the other story um, is a, well, it's a smaller story, but I want to include it because it's biological. And everything we've done uh, so far, uh, apart from the, just the last uh, item, uh, has all been about space. And yeah. I, like you, am a huge fan of space, yeah. Andrew. But I just want to let people know this is a show about all kinds of science. Okay, can I just say we have got through the whole show without saying Star Trek. Oops! Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Yes, Hannah and I talked about it last week. We thought that you'd be absolutely delighted. <laughs> Uh, to uh, that, there's a new series of Star Trek. Out. Sure, yes, anyway, yes. But uh, <laughs> s- sticking with the science, <laughs> um, there's a strange story that uh, it's not so strange, really, but it's interesting that um, the tsunami which uh, happened in 2011, uh, that terrible uh, yeah. tsunami, uh, which um, waves reached 39 meters in height. Uh, on the Tohoku coast of Japan and um, caused so much uh, damage and destruction and loss of life. Um, It started washing up uh, species, Japanese species of uh, creatures onto the American Pacific coast. And uh, researchers have said this is very strange at first sight because although um, a tsunami wave would tend to wash the creatures in that direction um you wouldn't expect them to survive because it's very very harsh but what they've done uh is instead of um just being there on their own or clinging to bits of wooden debris these creatures have traveled in little plastic boats which i i know sounds comical but the because of the the plastic pollution in the ocean um, creatures like mussels and starfish and crustaceans and all kinds of things have actually made it across all the way across the vast Pacific Ocean mm. to the American coast in basically clinging to bits of plastic, which is which have been boats yeah. for them, lifeboats. For Absolutely, them. and this is something that hasn't happened in in history because we haven't had the plastic and all it, uh, the wood that they would have been tra- traveling on, the wood yeah, that, that would have been uh, from trees and just, from plants, disintegrated. just disintegrated by the yeah. time it would have reached there. So. Yeah, and they would have died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there we go. So that's interesting. So they're, they're going to be looking out for, uh, you know, what they call invasive species, uh, species that suddenly turn up that have an advantage over the native species, and that can cause problems. Anyway, it's time to welcome, of course, John Ford, 
who uh, you've got to stay around because after the news, John Ford is going to be getting Bristol home. He always loves to remind us of the things we might have talked about but didn't. Hello. How are you? I'm just fine. Well, you well, can you're tell. Not. No, I, no I, I, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Croaky. Yeah, I was like yeah. that over the weekend. It's terrible. Yeah, There's something yeah, going yeah. around, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, but I'm, fe- I'm feeling reasonably okay. You should, uh, yeah. you should go and capitalise I on do want to have, I must say, I do want to have a bit of a rest now. <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah. 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 Can you take anything for it? No. You're a scientist. You should know all the, all the uh, kills yeah, here. Yeah. Honey and lemon. <laughs> Honey and lemon, yeah. yeah. Now, as scientists, chaps, I've noticed oh. you've not got watches on. No. No, have you never worn a watch, Andrew? Uh, I, d- I, I, no, I don't. I don't think I have. Malcolm, do you have? Oh yeah, I used to wear a watch, but no, I use my mobile phone now. Well, you, you should be wearing a watch because today, in 1956, it's the birthday of the Atomicron, which was the first atomic clock. Ah. It was unveiled in the United States. Actually, it was worth about fifty thousand dollars at the time. My watch here is an atomic uh, watch. They're pretty cheap as chips these days, but they, yeah. they keep really good time and That's just update cool. automatically. I just use my body clock. Do you? Well, that's probably more accurate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow, amazing. Well, yeah, no, so happy birthday to the atomic clock. Yeah, uh, of course, atomic clock, just out of interest, it's because of atomic clocks, which is so incredibly accurate, yeah. that we can check uh, whether or not relativity is true. Because if you go to a very, very high building, uh, the, the clock will run slightly faster than one that's lower down. Really? Uh, really true. You've got to go pretty high, though. Oh, you've got to go pretty high. But And the best way to do it is to, is to travel very fast, and you can see the, 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 the difference oh, in, right. um, uh, yeah, in speed. So atomic clocks allow us to do that, yeah. Oh, that's, that's very good. Anyway, very happy birthday to the atomic clock. Um, a fellow called Jay Oosterhout, any ring a bell? No. He patented something this day. Very, very scientific invention. He patented the tin can, right. but oh, right. with the key on the side. Corn yeah. beef. Oh, right. You buy the little square corned beef uh, cans, yes. you know, with the key on the side? Yeah. Yeah, 1866, that was, uh, again, it's still around it's today. I have some uh, tins from some. that time. And what's in the tin? (laughs) Yeldy meat. (laughs) Just in case the bomb drops. But but most importantly, this day in 1608, and this goes back to some of the stuff that you've been talking about, and this is a fella, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I don't know how to pronounce it, apart from his first name, uh, Johannes or Hans. Uh, Lippesche? Lippesche? Do you, do you know oh, this no, fellow? No, I don't know his name. All right, well, he demonstrated um, a new invention on this day in 1608. It was the first optical or refracting telescope. Oh, wow. It was a prototype in its time, um, and he, he was a Dutch fellow, and uh, he presented it to the, the, the Dutch military, and, and they thought it was a good idea. And he was a fellow that worked in the, in the sort of spectacle service, the, the, the glasses. He was, yeah. was an old... Uh, uh, original. What's the name of the book? Um, the optician. He was an optician. Uh, original. <laughs> right. Uh, and okay. he found out that the, 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 the short-sighted and uh, long-sighted glasses, if you put them a little further apart from each other, yeah, um, it magnifies. Um, uh, so right. he put it in a tube, and it, it was the very, very first telescope. When Galileo heard about the device, he made something similar, um, uh. but he kind of boosted it up and, and made it a little bit better. And the reason it's called a telescope, because there was a guest at an outdoor banquet, which Galileo was hosting, and this fellow just came up with the word. Simple as that. Okay. So the telescope, born this day in 1608. I think, yeah. I think Galileo is more famous for turning it towards the skies. Well, he, he, he then... That's what he, he took it and, and yeah. saw the, you know, and he, he made it even bigger and better yeah. and pointed it to the heavens. Yeah. I, I've seen Galileo's original telescope. Yeah. I've, I, I've actually seen it. Well, so, it, it, uh, it was based on this fella. 
ah. called Johannes Lippershek. He was the, the jolly one who really, really invented it. The yeah. jolly trickster. We're oh, always yeah. discovering, aren't we? Somebody got there first. <laughs> Someone, <laughs> Someone more, always more, gets more, those. More and somebody famous. always takes the credit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, well. well um, don't forget to stay uh, tuned uh, to listen to John Ford getting Bristol home after the news. Always great to uh, chat to you, John. And um, uh, it just remains for me to say a big thanks for being with us on the show uh, from... Uh, Andrew Glester and I, we wish you a very good evening. Don't forget to tune in to us again uh, next week. Science.